Hello again, my soft-hearted listeners. Welcome back to another episode of A Soft Mess. It's barely here, your queer mess of a host. This month, we're bringing you a special Dear Bear episode where I'll be answering some listener questions that I've gotten over the past few weeks. Next month, we'll be back to bringing you interviews and guest speakers and the like, but for now, let's get into the three questions that I've chosen to answer on today's podcast, all centering around therapy, mental health awareness, and getting a diagnosis. So our first question comes from an anonymous listener on the East Coast, and it reads like this. I know I should go to therapy, but every time that I start looking up resources, I get overwhelmed and my anxiety keeps me from calling anyone or even knowing who to call. Help, do you have any advice? Signed, Anxious and Confused. Well, my dear anxious and confused, um, I just want to say that I'm really proud of you for reaching out for some extra support. Sometimes even taking that first step is hard. So I just want to say that I'm here for you, I'm proud of you, and I'll do what I can to support you by answering your question. When it comes to starting therapy, you're definitely right. It can be so overwhelming. We don't really talk about it to begin with as a society or within our families. And there are so many different ways to find the right therapist. And I decided to make a little list of my favorites. So hopefully one of these ways will click with you and it can get you on your way to seeking out therapy and getting the help that you need. So my first bit of advice is that you can start by using word of mouth. You may not think so, but you probably have at least a couple of people that you can ask for a therapist recommendation. First of which is your primary care provider. If you have one, especially one that you've been seeing for a while, that you're pretty open with, that knows you, they can really help with um, making a recommendation that's personalized to your situation. If you have insurance, they can point you in the direction of someone uh, in your network. And if you don't, they may even know of a therapist that works on a sliding scale or of a group that meets that you could attend for group therapy. You know, it may feel awkward at first, but community support is a big part of healing and growing. So sometimes it might just be the first step before finding a therapist to work with one-on-one. So don't, don't just uh, ignore those options. Sometimes going out of your comfort zone and going to group therapy is just as important as you know searching for a therapist to sit down with for individual therapy. So I know that sometimes we're still in a place where we can't just ask for help or we're just not ready to admit that we need it. So asking for recommendations isn't always a viable option for everyone. So my second uh, bit of advice is that you can start on your health insurance's website. 
Some websites have a search engine that connects you with specialists in your area and in your network, so it's definitely a great place to start. You can just type in therapists or psychologists or, you know, whatever in the search bar, click how many, uh, you know, what kind of a mile radius you want to give yourself, you know, how much you're willing to commute to find the right therapist, and see what happens. This is probably the most low-pressure way to search for a therapist on your own, but keep in mind, if you live in an area that is uh, densely populated or has a lot of therapists around, you might get too many results to weed from and you might be just as overwhelmed as you started. So proceed at your own caution when it comes to searching on your own without any sort of guidance. I do think that searching on the health insurance's website will bring you more concentrated results than if you were to start with Google. So I think it's definitely a better place to start than just going onto the internet blindly. But definitely be aware that you might still be overwhelmed with this option and you might need to reach out to someone in order to get extra help. And so that brings me to my third piece of advice. If you do need some help navigating the site or their search box or just want a stranger's help to find a therapist, you can call your health insurance directly and talk to a representative about uh, your local options. So this one is still pretty low pressure because if you don't have phone anxiety, it's pretty easy to just call someone, especially if they're a stranger, and ask for resources. If you do have phone anxiety, it does become a little bit more difficult, but one way to work around that is to find these, uh, find the numbers to call and then ask someone that you're close to to either uh, help you write a script so you feel more confident calling because you know what to say, or to be there with you while you call so you can uh, ask them for advice on what to say if you freeze up, or you can have them call for you if you feel comfortable with that and if they offer and also feel comfortable doing that. Calling a representative also sometimes can give you a leg up when it comes to finding the right therapist. The representative might be able to ask you some questions that can yield better search results when it comes to finding the doctor that's right for you. You might not know what to type into the search box to get the result that you need, but if they ask you the right questions, they can get you those keywords and you can get closer to seeing the person that's the right fit for you. So those are some of my favorite ways to start seeking out a therapist, but they definitely do center around having health insurance. So aside from word of mouth, I do want to stress that Google is your best resource if you don't have health insurance. It can definitely feel overwhelming, but searching for words like therapist plus your area, like whatever town or county you live in, plus a specialty if there's one you're looking for, will yield you some of the best results. So yeah, you can, you can Google different doctors and get those kinds of recommendations, 
or you can Google to find clinics rather than individual doctors because you may not need someone who specializes in anything or you may not know what you need. So finding a clinic is a great way to find something affordable. If you don't have health insurance, you'll be looking for sliding scale clinics. Uh, if they work on a sliding scale, that means that they go based off of your income. So if you don't make a lot of money, they'll work with what you have. So it might be a better idea to start with a Google search for a sliding scale clinic. And then once you have any options in front of you, you can check out the doctors that they have on their staff. So Google can be overwhelming, but if you, if you find the right path of Googling, you might actually get some of the best results and the most personalized results. After you pick a therapist or a clinic, call them and ask if they're taking new patients. If they are, make an appointment, then show up to it, and they'll help you with the rest. If you're struggling finding a therapist or a support group in your area, reach out to people online. There are a lot of online forums centered around mental health support. It's a good place to start if you don't want to actually interact with any humans, just read their questions and different responses. Uh, there are also online support groups where you can interact with people with similar problems as you and get their two cents, get some personal anecdotes, uh, and maybe even get some recommendations for something that's closer to home. I think getting some online validation and support is beneficial, especially while you keep looking for something closer to home. Patience is definitely something that we need to hold on to when it comes to looking for a therapist, but we shouldn't give up. So good luck with your search, and I hope that these bits of advice help you on your path to getting some, some support. This next question also comes from an anonymous listener on the East Coast. Do you have a lot of memories from your past, especially your childhood? I can't remember anything, and I'm worried that it's going to keep me back from healing and being a good person, even if I am in therapy. There is so much honesty in this question and I'm really glad that I was the person that you asked. I don't know how much people normally remember from their past, but I'd bet that most people rem remember more than I do. I have very few memories from my childhood, especially vivid ones, and it does cause me anxiety. Sometimes I clam up when my therapist asks me if I remember certain kinds of situations happening in the past or if I remember the first time I felt a certain way, because I, I can't, I can't remember those things. It does make me fear that I won't heal fast enough or fully enough, like what I can't remember makes me less than, but it, it doesn't, and I'm not. What I try to remember is 
that what I remember has to be enough. And it is enough. Because no matter what has happened in the past, I am always deserving of personal growth, and so are you. So just work with what you have. There are a couple of things you can do in therapy and on your own that will make it so that you're still growing and healing and becoming a better person for yourself but not stressing out about all the things that you can't remember. So one of those things is that you can focus on the symptoms, trying to manage them through different coping mechanisms and behavioral changes. That's a pretty good place to start. Another thing that you can do is identify thought patterns and thinking traps and replace them with ones that are grounded in reality and that work for you. I'll go into thinking traps more in a future episode because later this year I will be doing a mental health series. But you can just Google cognitive distortions or thinking traps and you'll get a list of them that you can go through, identify if uh, you are stuck in any of them, and then find different ways to replace them with better thought patterns and processes. And the last thing you can do is to just allow present factors to determine the course of your therapy. So just don't put pressure on yourself or on your sessions with your therapist to figure things out or to, you know, remember the things you can't remember. Just work with what you're dealing with. Don't try to go back, you know, to the past and change things because you can't. So whatever is happening right now, deserves your attention, deserves your care. So those are some things that you can do to still make a lot of progress in your life and in therapy without having a good memory. Sometimes when we can't remember things, it's just our brains telling us we don't need to remember it at all or just for right now. It may not be the right time for it so just focus on something else and when the right time comes you might remember the things that you're forgetting and our last question comes from matt in colorado matt asks how did your life change when you got diagnosed with bipolar disorder? That is a really good question. One that I don't think I actually thought about before I sat down to record this podcast. So, so to me, a diagnosis, the diagnosis was validating. It was embarrassing, confusing, and enlightening all at the same time. And also scary, but I think that part probably started before the diagnosis. I think I've always been scared of working on my mental health. So that was just like a regular feeling, but the diagnosis definitely put a lot of things into perspective for me. It was embarrassing because I felt like I now had all of my flaws exposed to me all at once. My moods were unstable, I couldn't manage them on my own, I couldn't really sleep, 
or if I did sleep, I slept too much. And the inconsistency of my sleep schedule really affected my moods and my body. I oscillated from depressed to hypomanic really frequently. And if anyone found out about this bipolar diagnosis, not only would I have to face myself and my flaws, but I'd also be exposed to others. You know, they would essentially be able to see through me and see all of my flaws and all of my mistakes. And that was it for me. That's, that's what I felt and that's why I was embarrassed. But in reality, even if someone does find out about my bipolar disorder, they may have some preconceived notions um, about people with bipolar and they may put some stereotypes on me and what whatnot, but most people won't do that. And, um, and if they do do that, it's mostly because they don't know anyone with bipolar disorder or they know one person with bipolar disorder and it was a very bad experience. And so just getting to know each other can really cancel out any of the preconceived notions and um, misconceptions. On top of being embarrassed, I also felt really confused because the words bipolar disorder meant literally nothing to me at first. All that they meant was a lifelong sentence to therapy, medication, and keeping my shit together. So I really just kind of felt like alone until I joined some bipolar support groups, until I got on the right medication regimen, and until I started really taking advantage of therapy. But, but yeah, like I definitely, I definitely felt confused and just nervous about what I was supposed to do to take care of myself now. What did it mean to have bipolar disorder? So it was embarrassing, it was confusing, but it was also enlightening. I realized that many decisions that I made in the past that ended up harming me were just plain impulsive. And that that impulsivity was something that I could learn to manage. I also realized that how I was feeling um, wasn't how everyone else was feeling, but that I also wasn't the only one to feel this way. And so I felt less alone. And then I remembered that I had a support group and I had people that loved me and that I didn't have to do it alone. I realized moments where I should have acted differently and I recognized some of my triggers I saw thought patterns that I could undo, and things really started looking up. That, that enlightenment felt like validation, and I actually felt like I could do it for the first time. The diagnosis felt like a guidebook, and it felt like a friend in some ways. It was a guidebook because when once I knew what was up, I could take the steps to work on it with the right diagnosis. I 
started to receive better treatment during therapy. I, like I said, I got on the right medications, medications that didn't interact negatively with each other and actually uh, didn't have any negative side effects like with my body. And I also found groups and programs that catered to my needs. And that was, that was definitely a lifesaver because knowing that there are people out there that feel like you and that you're not alone is one thing, but actually communicating with people and feeling that you're not alone through that connection and that, um, type of support is another thing. And I think we we definitely need both. We need to know that we're not alone and we need to feel that we're not alone. And sometimes, you know, just getting that internet support or local support or what have you gets us there. So yeah, my life definitely changed after my bipolar disorder. There were a lot of bad feelings along with a lot of good feelings. So I just want to end this uh, answer on a simple note. I just want to say that whatever diagnosis you get, remember that good things will also come with the bad ones, and the bad feelings won't last forever, but so much good can come out of getting diagnosed that it's really worth risking feeling those bad feelings for a short amount of time uh, in exchange for getting a guidebook and starting on the journey of healing and managing your mental illness. Well, that's all I've got for you this month, softies. I hope that the answers to these questions help y'all out in terms of getting ready to seek out therapy, um, actually going about finding those resources, and following through and going to your first few sessions. I did want to take a moment to talk about what happens after you commit to go to your appointments. This might be an unpopular opinion. I'm not really too sure because I, on I have only talked about it to a couple of people. But I think that it's okay to quote-unquote therapist shop for the first few months. And what I mean by that is if you go to two to four sessions with someone and you just feel like they're not the right fit, they don't get your communication style, they don't offer you tips and tricks that seem plausible for your life, or you've tried some of them and they just really don't work out, and your therapist doesn't have any new ideas, then it's okay to say, hey, thank you for your support and all the things that you've uh, advised me, but I think I'm going to have to look for someone who can help me in a different way. You might even have some ideas of what you need after those first few appointments, and you can say, hey, I know I need X, Y, and Z, that you can't provide for me, but do you have any recommendations? They might be able to steer you in a, in a different direction. So don't be afraid to tell your therapist when it's not working, and don't be afraid to try again 
and get what you deserve for your mental health. Because that's the thing is if you're going to be going and spending time with someone, you know, in order to heal and become a better person, if they're not working with you, if they can't communicate with you, if the things that they are offering you are just not things that can even do any good in your life, then then it's not worth it. It's not progress. It's it's most likely going to cause you to be stunted or it's going to make you uh, roll back in progress and that's not going to be beneficial. So yeah, from personal experience, it definitely takes about two to four sessions for me personally to start feeling like my therapist sees me, hears me, understands my body language, and can offer me something that is beneficial to me in my life. So yeah, don't be afraid to start therapy, don't be afraid to switch therapy up, and don't be afraid to stop therapy with a certain type of therapist if they don't work for you, and just be patient because mental health is a lot of trial and error, but once you get through the things that don't work for you, you have a much better idea of what you do need, what you will need, and then you can just seek those out. Once you know what you're seeking out, it's much easier to get it. So go through some of that trial and error, figure out what you can do for your mental health, and set those goals with your therapist and achieve them because you can and you will, and it only takes one step at a time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month for an episode about asexuality. We've got a couple of interviews and some guest speakers that will be letting you in on their lives and what it means to them to be on the asexual spectrum. I'm really excited to share those perspectives with you. I feel like asexuality is something that's not often talked about, and when it is, a lot of the things that are said about it are either wrong or need some nuance. So hopefully a soft mess can give you a little bit of that. Hey there, you've been listening to A Soft Mess. We're an experimental podcast that delves into the intersections of mental health, identity, radical vulnerability, self-love, and self-care. Just so you know, this series is not meant to be treated as a medical resource, as we are not healthcare providers or mental health practitioners. While we may share self-care techniques, coping mechanisms, and other life skills, our main goal is to share experiences and stories for and from marginalized communities and groups. If you're struggling with mental illness, trauma, abuse, or any of the other areas this series may cover, we urge you to consider reaching out to a mental health provider or support group in your area. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or would like to share a story with our listeners, 
please email us at thebearcaveco at gmail.com. That's spelled T-H-E-B-A-R-E-C-A-V-E-C-O at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. We always want to learn and grow in our perspectives, as well as share other voices on the podcast. So don't be shy. We're here for you. We also use that email to accept donations via PayPal. If you like what we do and want episodes to air more frequently, that's one of the best ways to make that happen. Some other ways are, instead of making a monetary donation, to share the podcast with a friend and to go rate us five stars on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thank you so much for keeping a soft mess a part of your life. It means so much to us. And remember, softies, do good, be good, and stay soft. And Honey Bear is always, always here for you.